best of you, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take those and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. We come now to this last chapter in the book of Hebrews. I have uh, just so greatly enjoyed making our way through this book. I've uh, been encouraged, hopefully you as well have been encouraged, maybe challenged by the book of Hebrews. It is certainly a book that will, that will do that. It will encourage, it will challenge. One of the things about the book of Hebrews that, uh, that I believe is true is that there is no letter in the Bible that is more theological than the book of Hebrews. There is so much theology, so much doctrine packed up in the book of Hebrews that uh, it, it at times can seem overwhelming, it at times can seem like a difficult book. And yet what we see from the text that we come to now in Hebrews chapter 13 is that after all of this theology, all of this doctrine, we are presented now in Hebrews 13 uh, with very practical application for how we can take the theology, the doctrine found all throughout the book of Hebrews and apply it to our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, as those who have committed ourselves to him rather than the world. And so if you have your Bibles, let's look at Hebrews chapter 13. We'll be reading verse 1 through verse 6 this morning. If you would, church family, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as Christians in this life, we don't have to wonder how we are to live. We don't have to wonder about the gospel. We don't have to wonder about the God that we serve. For Lord, you have revealed it to us here in your word. And it is to this, the revealed word of God, that we come today. And as we come We ask for your aid. We ask for your assistance that we might read and understand rightly your word as we study it, as we look into it, as we dig our teeth into this delicious source of nutrition. Lord, I pray that today you would strengthen us. You would mold us more into the image of Christ, that the gospel would have its effect in our hearts and in our minds. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said here in this last chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, we really do come to a portion of scripture, a portion of this book that shifts, that, that shifts in the most dramatic way from all of the theology, all of the doctrine that we have been given into practical application. And if we're being honest, this ought to be the result of all of our theology. Our study of the Lord, our study of God always ought to lead us to right living. If we are studying theology, if we're learning doctrines of of God, of Christ, of Scripture, and our lives are not changed in the least, the way we live is unaffected 
then there is a serious discontinuity between our, between our heart and the information that we are actually learning. And so my prayer today is that as we read these verses here today, that as we study these, that our hearts would truly receive the word of God, that we would see how our theology, our orthodoxy produces orthopraxy, how our, our doctrine produces right living. The writer in this section, in this portion of instruction, begins by hitting on three topics that are just as relevant today as they were at the writing of this letter. And you might notice by the title of my sermon what these three topics are. These three topics are love, sex, and money. Three topics that even the world recognizes as important topics. You can hardly watch a movie or a television show or see an advertisement today and these three topics are not forefront in the mind of the culture. And for us as believers as well, as we are instructed by Scripture, see that these are not forgotten issues excuse me, by the Holy Spirit either. But these verses present for us what right worship looks like, the right kind of worship that we are to offer to God as we have been encouraged to do previously in chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 28 of Hebrews, when we see that we have been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be grateful. And as the author says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The author commands us, offer to the Lord acceptable worship. But then he doesn't leave us to figure out what acceptable worship is. But rather, in, in just a, another verse or two, he dives right into what right and proper worship looks like in the life of the believer. These verses answer the question, what is acceptable worship? And the answer is much more extensive than just what happens here on Sunday mornings? What we are doing here in this moment, in this hour, is a form of worship. As we gather together corporately as the body of Christ to worship our Lord and Savior together for what he has done for us as a people. This is right and this is good and this is worship. But the worship that our God expects, that he commands of us, is far more extensive than just what happens here on Sunday morning. Rather, right worship that is acceptable to God is found in the way Christians live. There are three areas of Christian living that are being addressed here in, in these verses. And at first, it might seem that they are completely unrelated, but I think as we consider all three of these areas, and as we consider them together, we'll see how they are really naturally connected and they are an outgrowth of what a proper spiritual life looks at. And first, let us consider, as, as the author starts this section, with hospitality. Point number one of my sermon, if you are taking notes and following along, is hospitality. And, and this is a, a form of love that we are commanded to as believers. The author opens this section with these words, let brotherly love continue. Notice he doesn't say, begin loving one another as brothers. Let brotherly love begin. But rather, the expectation of the author, of the Holy Spirit, is that brotherly love is a natural and right outcropping of the Christian life. That it makes little sense to think that we could have been changed by the gospel, that we could be unified together as brothers and sisters in Christ, 
As Paul says in Hebrews, with the dividing wall of hostility being broken down by Christ and that there would be no brotherly love, no brotherly affection. That's ludicrous. It doesn't make sense that that would be the case. And, and so the author here does not command that brotherly love begin, but rather he says, let brotherly love continue. Foster, encourage, let grow what God has placed in you, what he has put in your heart and in your life and what is naturally being produced by the Holy Spirit. Because while we recognize that those who have been changed by the Holy Spirit will naturally produce brotherly affection, it is not something that we have to work all that hard to produce, the author would clearly have us to see here that it is something that can be stifled. It is something that can be quenched, that can be suppressed. And so the author encourages us, do not suppress brotherly love, but rather let it continue. Encourage it. Foster it. And one of the main ways that he encourages us to foster this kind of brotherly affection, brotherly love, is through hospitality. Hospitality is is largely a, a dying art here in the Western world. And I think especially in, in this side of, of COVID-19, even, even more so. The, the, even wor- the word hospitality is not something that is familiar in our vocabulary here in the West, here in the United States, but is largely foreign to most of us. This concept of hospitality, of caring for those in need, of, of opening up our homes, Chapter 2, or verse 2 of our text gets right at this. In, chapter two, in verse 2 of our passage, the author says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. This is the first of two forms of hospitality that the author is, is proposing, is, that, is, that he is encouraging the believers here to have and to exercise. And this first form of hospitality is that of of opening our homes, even opening up our homes to those who we do not know, to those who we do not know well, to those who we would seek to encourage with the gospel. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This is a fascinating statement, and I think we might initially scoff at, to think that someone who we might show hospitality, show kindness to, whether that means inviting them into our home to share a meal, whether that means letting them have our line at the grocery store, whether that means whatever it might be, whatever form of hospitality it is, the author is making a claim here that in doing so, there have been some who have entertained angels unknowingly. And while our motivation for exercising hospitality, for pouring love out upon those around us, even those who we do not know, The motivation for it is not to be just in case this person is an angel. Rather, our motivation is to be out of what God has done for us, the love, the hospitality that he has granted us, that he has given us even his son to die on the cross for our sin. Or picture Jesus in the upper room in John 13 as he methodically washed the feet of his disciples, even the disciple whom he knew was going to betray him. We are called, we are encouraged, we are commanded as believers to show hospitality to all who are around us, even those who we do not know. It ought to be the mark of a Christian. This is one of two forms of hospitality that the author encourages us in. The second is seen in verse 3 where he says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. 
Here the, the focus is on our care, on our hospitality for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who are struggling, those who are afflicted, or even those who are in prison, facing persecution for their faith. This letter was likely written at a time when persecution was high for the Lord's people, was high for Christians. And it was, it was likely that many of them were facing imprisonment at this time. And it also was not uncommon, uncommon in this day for prisoners in Roman prisons to have to rely on those outside of prison. They had to rely on friends and family to even bring them food and water in order to sustain them in prison. Therefore, the command here to remember them may very well carry with it the idea that they are to literally be sustained by them. That forgetting those who are now in prison could mean the very downfall of these believers, could mean the loss of their life, that literally their sustaining is dependent upon the brothers and sisters in Christ. This was an important burden to bear. And as Christians, they were called to bear it joyfully, to bear it willingly, and to bear it as though they were there with them in the midst of that imprisonment, in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that persecution. And this command does not mean that there has to be someone for us. It doesn't mean that there has to be someone that we know in prison for this command to apply to us in order for us to care for one another in this kind of way. For indeed, he says, those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. The idea behind this passage is not simply that if you know someone in prison, you have to go feed them, you have to go care for them. But as long as you don't have anyone in prison, no worries. But rather, what this verse ought to cause us to see, ought to motivate us to, is this indeed kind of brotherly love, this kind of affection, this hospitality, in which we love and care for one another as though we are loving and caring for ourselves, as though we are loving and caring for our own family. And it's something that I don't think that we do all that well. And we could point to various reasons why. We could point to, point to issues in the culture. We could point to issues because of COVID-19. But the reality is, hospitality is essentially dead in the West. And I think it's a sad, sad truth that it is equally as dead in the lives of many churches as it is in the culture at large. I think it's a, it's a shame indeed that cultures such as in Islam in the Islamic world are extremely, emphatically hospitable. And yet, in Christian circles, hospitality is withering out like a flame of a candle. I think this is an absolute shame upon us. Especially when, hospi when hospitality is commanded in Scripture directly and seriously. And yes, we might not know someone who is right now in prison who will die if we are not there to sustain them, to bring them food and water. But do we really not think that our hospitality, our love, our care for one another is not just as sustaining to our brothers and sisters in Christ today? For those of you who have ever gone through hardship, who have ever faced persecution, who have ever struggled in this life, have you ever found more encouragement, more strength, more sustaining than the people of God who have come along beside you to build you up, to encourage you in that, to bolster you in that? 
the Lord has given us his church. Because we are not intended to be Christians living in this world alone, living on an island. But rather, he has given us brothers and sisters in Christ to sustain us, to encourage us, to come alongside us when we face anguish and sorrow like the loss of a loved one. To encourage us when we face persecution in the world. To help us when we find ourselves at loss and in need. Hospitality is something that goes far beyond just a handshake and a friendly smile. It means coming alongside one another, opening up our homes one another, to one another, treating each other as this text commands us, as family. Let brotherly love continue. Encourage, I encourage you, invite one another into your homes, not the way you would the President of the United States if he were to come and visit but the way you would your brother, the way you would your sister. When your family is in town, when you have a brother or a sister or a family member who is passing through town and says, hey, I would, I would love to come over and visit. What do you say? Well, my house is a wreck. Let me spend a, a day or two cleaning, get it all in order, and then I'll invite you over. No, you say, absolutely, come on over. Who cares if your house is a mess? It's my brother, it's my sister. They don't care if my house is a mess. I'm going to invite them in. I'm going to open up my home. I'm going to show them hospitality. So often do we not let our pride get in the way of our hospitality? This is an absolute shame. We are called to show hospitality in this way. I would encourage you that there is more continuity between the original readers of this letter and us than we might at first think. That we need each other. We need each other for our sustaining. The Lord has given us the church, and he has given us the church for this purpose. The fact that we should consider those brothers or sisters who are experiencing hardship as though we are experiencing that hardship along with them is true. It's true because in one sense, we are experiencing that with them. For when one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. This is what Paul tells us as he says that the church is one body with many members. He describes it in terms of a physical body. And just like a physical body, when one part suffers, the whole body feels that pain. So it is with the body of Christ. And this is not a hard principle to illustrate. Just think about your own physical body. And I will give you one or two simple illustrations that you can see how this works and how it applies. If you have ever been working on a project, doing some woodworking, swinging a hammer, and you hit your thumb with that hammer, boy, oh boy, your whole body feels it. Doesn't it? I know when I hit my thumb with a hammer, someone could walk in and easily ask the question, what's hurt? Because I'm not going to sit there and stare at my thumb. I'm going to be dancing around. I'm going to be moving. I'm going to be making noise. Words are going to be coming out of my mouth. I'm going to be angry. The whole body is going to experience that pain. It's going to show that pain. Maybe if you don't swing hammers very often, but you have kids, if you've ever stepped on a Lego, very same, very similar sensation. Your whole body is going to feel, is going to, going to move with the anguish, with the pain of that experience. And church family, when one of us, when one of the members of the body is suffering, 
Maybe they're not in prison, but maybe they're going through a hard time this season. Maybe they've lost a loved one. Maybe they're going through depression. Do we feel the weight of that sorrow? Do we feel the weight of that anguish as the rest of the body? Too often times, we don't. God has called us to live this Christian life together, unified as one, committed to one another, knowing one another well, so that when a brother or sister in Christ is hurting, we know it and we can feel it along with them. This is an encouragement for us to really get to know one another, isn't it? For us to be able to know what's going on in each other's lives. For us to care what's going on in one another's lives. So church family, I would encourage you. Care about what's going on in your brothers' and sisters' lives. In your fellow church members' lives. By this, we show the love of Christ. When we love each other as though we are going through that same pain, that same anguish, that same persecution. It's the basic understanding of the New Testament that a love for Christ will be demonstrated by love for one another. This is how the world will know that we belong to Christ. That's what Jesus says in John 13. By this, the world you will know that you are my disciples by the love that you show for one another. Let us show a love for one another that is so extreme, so loving, so caring, that even the world can't resist this kind of love. Number two, the second thing that our author tells us as he has explained to us hospitality and the role that it plays in the Christian life, he moves now, uh, and as I said, it seems as though he is just on a dime switching gears, and yet I think all of these things are related. He shifts now in verse four to a discussion on marriage and sexual purity. In verse 4, we read, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This broad statement that the author makes here at the beginning of verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, is a refreshing word to lean into, especially in light of the way marriage is treated in our culture today. We live in a culture today where marriage is far removed from the way the Lord designed it. The original design of marriage was intended to be a mutual sacrificing of ourselves, sacrificing of our own needs, our own wants, our desires. Marriage was, in and of itself, a selfless thing. And to this day, this is how the Lord has commanded that marriage ought to be what it ought to look like. And yet in our world today and, and even among Christian circles, marriage has become something that has moved from a selfless venture into something that is purely a selfish venture. That marriages only last as long as we are getting our needs met. Marriages only have value so long as our spouse is contributing what they ought to contribute to us. Marriage is only valuable so long as I genuinely feel I have a need for a spouse if I am single. But marriage is overall, the idea of marriage that God has put forward in his word is trampled, denigrated in our culture. And we are commanded by the Holy Spirit here in Hebrews not to live like this, but rather to let marriage be held in honor among all. 
God created marriage to be a sacred and honorable union between one man and one woman united together as one flesh. And he has uniquely blessed this union. We are to show this union the honor that it deserves. This goes both for the married and the unmarried in here today. To those who are unmarried. Do you hold marriage in a place of honor? I would ask you a few questions. Do you, do you see the value in committing your life to this kind of union? Or are you opposed to marriage? Have you seen all the negatives of marriage, all the sinful corruptions of marriage, and deemed that marriage itself is no good or not worth it? I would encourage you, don't let the world influence your view of marriage. If you are unmarried in here today, are you striving now to prepare yourself for marriage? To, to prepare yourself for this kind of self-sacrificing commitment? Or are you now living as one committed to themselves? If so, then you are not showing marriage the honor that it is due. If you're single in this place, are you seeking someone to marry who will honor marriage and the creator of marriage the same way that you do? Or are you content to, content to date and look for people, pursue people who do not value marriage, who do not value the word of the Lord the way that you do. For married and unmarried alike, we are to hold marriage in high honor. Husbands and wives, are you giving marriage the honor that it is due? There are some who, who might think that just because you are married, that you are giving it honor. Well, I did it, right? So obviously I think it's important. And yet we know that even husbands and wives can denigrate marriage, can fail to show it the honor that it is due. And I would ask you a few questions. Are you selfless in your commitment to your spouse? Do you insist upon your own way? Do you insist on having your needs met? Or are you selflessly seeking to meet the needs of the other? This is simple. This is marriage 101, and yet, if we're honest, we all can examine our lives and see areas in which we have sought our own self-gratification, even at times at the expense of that of our spouse. Do you in your marriage celebrate and thank God for your marriage? This is another part of showing marriage the honor that it is due, celebrating it regularly, often giving marriage the honor that it is due by thanking God for the marriage that he has given you, by thanking God for giving you the privilege of engaging in this honorable union. It's a sad fact, but I think a true one. That even if we start out in marriage viewing it as honorable, over time we may lose that sense of the honor of marriage. And it becomes simply a drudgery or a chore or even worse, a life sentence. And if this is you, if you view marriage as a drudgery, as a chore, as a life sentence in which you are stuck or desire to get out, then I would encourage you, you need to repent. And the problem is not, as so many people think it is, that you have lost the infatuation with your spouse. Maybe your spouse doesn't look the same as when you married them. Maybe the things that you found cute at first, you don't find cute anymore, but annoying. But let me encourage you, church family, that our commitment to marriage and our view of marriage as an honorable union is not dependent upon how amazing our spouse is on how perfect our spouse is, on, on, how, on how physically attracted we constantly are to our spouse. Marriages, good marriages, are not built on lust 
but on a commitment to this union one to another. A commitment to one another. Because that's what love is. Love is a commitment. Love is not simply a, a feeling or an emotion that, that comes and goes. And when love is gone, marriage is gone, I guess, out the window along with love. But what do we see in Scripture? Rather, what we see is love is commanded. We are commanded to love one another even in this passage. We are commanded, husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. We are commanded to love the Lord. Our love is something that is commanded. It is a commitment. And none more so than the love between our husband and wife. Along with holding marriage in honor, we are commanded to keep the marriage bed undefiled. In reality, this could be simply, simply added to the previous questions I asked to determine whether or not you are holding marriage in honor. The marriage bed is an exclusive privilege of the marriage union. And it's important that we recognize that it is a privilege of marriage. Sex is a beautiful and good and right thing. And it is an unfortunate thing that, that it has gone through so much distortion in our culture from, from, uh, from purity culture, even in the church, that has, that has led many to do not even want to say the word sex. That has had a negative effect. Certainly the, the culture in the midst of that has come along happy to teach us, teach our, our children, teach our, our church members about sex since we are too afraid to. And certainly we've seen the result of that kind of instruction. Even for me, as I, as I wrote this sermon and as I titled it, I wrote out the title, Love, Sex, and Money. And I thought, ooh, that seems a little risque. I don't know if I can say sex in my, in my title. But then I thought, what am I saying? It's a word that's in the Bible. If we're going to read our Bibles, we're going to see this word. But then I checked with the elders, and they also said it was okay. And I went ahead and put it in. <laughs> but sex is a beautiful and good thing in the context of marriage. When you look back to Genesis chapter 2, what do we see is true of Adam and Eve? The amazing statement that they became one flesh. Therefore, a, a man shall leave his mother and father and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then what's the next line in Genesis 2? And they were naked and unashamed. And that is a beautiful and amazing statement. And a statement that was immediately distorted in Genesis 3. But here's the amazing thing that we see about the marriage bed. That in the marriage bed, specifically for the union of marriage, this is the one place where a husband and a wife can be naked and unashamed. All throughout scripture, what we see post-Genesis 3 is nakedness associated with shame, with corruption, with wickedness. Except in one place that is found in the marriage bed. This is a holy and right and beautiful thing that God has given us in marriage. And it harkens back to Genesis 2, where in marriage we can still be naked and unashamed. It is a good thing. In our day and age, the idea of the marriage bed being a unique space for this gift of sex is laughable. And that makes this command all the more important. Because the more we seek to live holy lives, including the way we chasten ourselves and live according to a biblical sexual morality, where sex is reserved exclusively for the union of a husband and a wife, the more we are going to look radically different from the world. 
these are the various ways, or excuse me, there are, there are various ways that the marriage bed can be defiled, and many of them are covered in these verses where the writer says that God will judge the sexually immoral. Sexual immorality here in this passage is derived from the Greek word, which simply means any sexual activity outside the confines of marriage. That any sexual activity outside the confines of marriage, and if you are married and you engage in sexual activity with any other than your spouse, what did we just see in our last sermon? Our God is a consuming fire. God does not take lightly to this kind of refutation of his command, this kind of destruction of the union that he has put in place. And we should be warned that we hold the marriage bed undefiled, that we see marriage and give it the honor that it deserves, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And then finally, the third thing that we see as he has commanded us, be hospitable, be be. Uh, hold marriage in high honor, be sexually pure. Now we see the final verses here tell us that we are called to be content. Contentment is the expression found in verses five through six. This warning is against a love of money we see in verse five. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the fulfillment of the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. To covet what we do not have is to be discontent. And this kind of discontentment leads directly to a love of money, a love of the thing that we see as our avenue to that which we do not have and we desire. Talk about a misplaced love. Rather than loving the God who has given us what we do have and sustains us in that, We so often direct our love and our affection toward the thing that we think will get us what we don't have. And what we find there is, in fact, the opposite. Never being satisfied, never being content, never being sustained the way Christ sustains us. This is a self-perpetuating cycle of discontentment and anxiety. Because our affections are on the things that we don't have, we will always be in want. You know why? Because you will never have everything. You will never have that one thing that you think, if I only had that, then I would be satisfied. If you get that, you will realize, well, I also would like to have that. And when you get that, you'll realize you would like to have that. This is a monster that never gets full, whose appetite is never satisfied. And therefore, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are commanded in Scripture, don't feed it. Don't feed that monster. But rather, be content with what you have. Trusting the promise of God that he will never leave you nor forsake you. In Ecclesiastes, we find that all that this world has to offer is vanity. It is a vapor. It is here one moment. It is gone the next. It doesn't last. Dr. Moeller in his commentary on these verses reminds us that everything that can be taken away from us will one day be taken away from us. Everything that can be taken away from us will be taken away from us. What do we do then? We put our hope, we put our contentment, we put our satisfaction rooted in a place, rooted in something that cannot be taken away from us, the promises of God. Promises like this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
This is the key to contentment and the antidote to anxiety and discontentment. It is focusing and entrusting our lives to the promises of God that he will never leave us nor forsake us so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What a great question that is. And it's a rhetorical one at that. What can man do to me? If the Lord is my helper, there is nothing that man can do to me. Why? Because whatever man can do to me lasts only as long as this life. But as soon as this life is over, all that I have invested in that is eternal, all that has been granted me in Christ Jesus because of what he has done for me on the cross, that cannot be taken away. So therefore, nothing. That is the answer to the question, what can man do to me? Our contentment, if it is based in the promises of God, can never be removed. As we come to a close, I want us to think back to that question we asked from Chapter 12, verse 28. What is acceptable worship that we can offer to God? This is a life that is committed to Christ and obedient to his commands. This is acceptable worship to God. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. There's our answer, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by, the te by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what right and acceptable worship before God is, that we offer up our lives as a living sacrifice, and that it looks opposite of the world, that we be not conformed to the world, but transformed by the Spirit of God, transformed into something that looks more like this, something that, that looks like those who love both strangers and our brothers wildly, radically, a love that shows hospitality to all that we encounter, and that does so in spite of the fact that we not, might not have all that we want. That we might not have all of our desires met in this life, but that's okay. We are content in that. This is the worship that our Lord requires of us. A life that is radically different from this world. And a life lived this way in response to what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. All three of these issues that we've presented in these verses that the author has given us today. Present a way of living that stands out against the backdrop of the culture. Because what does the culture say? The culture says, look out for yourself. Don't worry too much about other people. Look out for number one. The culture says, the marriage bed means nothing. Do what feels good when it feels good. The culture says, seek to have all of your desires met. Just go for a little bit more, and then you'll be satisfied. But what God has called us to looks exactly the opposite of that. So that the more we live up to this biblical standard that God has given us, of a life of radical hospitality, of purity and honoring marriage and the marriage bed, and of contentment that says, yeah, I don't have all that I would like, 
But that's all right. God is good. This, against the backdrop of the world, will stand out. It will, in a sense, shine like a light to the world. And that is what we've been called to do. We've been called to live our lives in a way that is radically different from the world. So that never it may be said that we are a reason that someone doesn't believe the gospel. Have you ever heard someone say something like this? I don't believe the gospel is true because I've known Christians. I've known Christians who claimed to be changed, who claimed to be filled with the Spirit, who were absolute jerks, who thought only of themselves, who didn't show any care, any hospitality for others, who lived lives of sexual gratification however they desired. It's an unfortunate thing that that can be oftentimes said of those who profess Christ. I would encourage you, church family, live your life in a way out of worship for the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in a way that no one could ever make that accusation of you. In a way that when people look at your life, they say, that person is different. You know what that's going to do? It's going to open up great opportunities for you to tell them why it is that you're different. What it is that has caused this change in you. It opens up opportunities for us to share the gospel. If you guys are on the Redeemer Messenger in our app, if you're not, I want to encourage you, get plugged into that. It's a great way to find out uh, things that are going on. Stay connected to the church, including uh, a prayer uh, list on there that if you have prayer requests, you can upload them, and you can see what the prayer requests of your church family are as well. But if you're on that, then you'll see that uh, Jacob Candler recently posted an encouragement. An encouragement to, as you are celebrating Thanksgiving or, or Christmas this year, and if you have relatives, family members who do not know Christ, this is a great opportunity. These holiday seasons for us to share the good news of the gospel with them, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult. And I would encourage you, come to your Thanksgiving, come to your Christmas gatherings with this in mind, knowing that those who are there who don't know Christ are looking to you to see an example of what a Christian life looks like. And every time the Lord gives you opportunity, whether because of the way they see you act or maybe because of the way they see you fail, take that opportunity to declare to them the good news of the gospel so that they might be saved. Let's pray.